Hi folks, and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. This is a conversation we had yesterday with Sam McElwain, the co-host of Shrapnel, and journalist campaigner Emma D'Souza around the events and tragic events that have unfolded in Northern Ireland in recent days, and indeed the political stalemate of the last couple of years. It does seem that uh, a deal seems to be imminent now on the on the Northern Ireland Protocol. We believe uh, Ursula van der Leyen is on her way, and you'd assume she's not coming to meet Rishi Sunak for... Uh, tea and biscuits but nonetheless I think it was great to get the perspective of people who live within the communities rather than listen to the uh, political shenanigans of of people who have not delivered for the, the, any of the people of this island. Uh, again thanks to Sam and thanks to Emma for their time if you can, if you like what we do, please help us keep it going and the only way you do that is by joining us at patreon.com forward slash tortoise it is the price of a fancy cup of coffee once a month to you. It's mics on, lights on, and conversations going for us. Thanks again, and I won't delay any further. Enjoy the podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Echo Chamber Podcast. My name is Tony Groves. And uh, before we kick off, I want to say a little bit about um, our friend uh, Mick Finnegan and his pal Martin and the the protest that they did outside St. John's Ambulance for almost three weeks where they stood there with the signs break the silence. They've received assurances from St. John's Ambulance that substantial c- progress has been made and the report will be published imminently. They're looking at a, a, an update I think it's uh, in the middle of next week, fingers crossed, and hopefully that that will then bring you know bring things to some form of closure. Uh, I do want to say you know it took a lot to stand out there in the cold and uh, and and a place where, as Mick says himself, where he was groomed and eventually raped. So that's that's where he he stood there and he stood with his with his with his former colleagues who suffered the same. Uh, barbarity and evil acts that were taking place when they were just kids. And then on on a flip side, this is a strange digression. Mix forty today, so happy birthday, uh, big man! And uh, you know, it's 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 nice that you're not standing outside there on your fortieth anyway. So uh, you know, wherever you are, uh, cheers to you, pal. Uh, anyway. That's enough of that. I am delighted to be joined on the podcast by two good friends at the Tortoise Shack. One, one uh, who is a the co-host of Shrapnel and um, Sam, you know, you're working on se- season two, but I thought, you know, things are kicking off a lot more. Things are a bit more difficult at the moment. So I thought maybe we should have this conversation uh, before we even get into what, what Shrapnel season two is going to look like. And and our friend Emma D'Souza, who, uh, who is, look, you'll all know Emma. She's a journalist. She's been a campaigner, a peace builder. She's now co-facilitated with a civic initiative in Northern Ireland. Uh, so Emma, it's great to see you. How are you keeping? Yeah, can't complain. You know, it's like I hear him from Anna. Spring's yeah. coming in. It's great. It does. Everybody has sunshine coming in their windows except for me. <laughs> um, look, Sam, if you don't mind, obviously events have been horrendous. We, we want to say, you know, the the uh, sixth man has been arrested in, in relation to the attempted murder of uh, DCI John Caldwell, who is still critically ill, but who was shot in front of his, his, his son at a at GA training. Events since then, I know we were in touch during the week, uh, seem to have gotten worse in terms of the the rhetoric we're hearing from uh, paramilitaries, dissident Republicans, and uh, you know members of of loyalist paramilitary organisations. Can I ask you for your sense of of how febrile it actually is? Well, I mean, if I had had this conversation last week, I would have said probably most of what I'm going to say now. It, the feeling. I know if you go on Twitter, Twitter, you get lost in that cesspit of people putting the tweets out and the rhetoric and everything else that goes with it. 
but there is a genuine feeling at the minute in some of those communities that there's something that's not right for them and they are uneasy about it. Um, how uneasy varies from person to person. And I would say that not all of them would say that the placards that went up in the last 24 hours represent how they feel and what they think a response should be. Um, th they are mostly saying that the politicians need to sort this out. It's a political uh, sort of challenge at the minute and it needs to be sorted out by those that we have elected to represent this. Um, but they are not letting those politicians off the hook. Every time they see a politician, now they're challenging them. Um, I know a couple of them that um, have avoided a few events this week just because they are getting a tough time. Um, they Things are moving in the background and people don't know what's going on in the vacuum that's been left. It's been it's been allowed to be populated by those who have the, the loudest drum, we'll say, yeah. and who are rattling that can. Um, it, it is a case of speaking to the guys who are actually doing the work at the minute, and it's about trusting them to get it done. So, so the headlines where you say, you know, you hear people saying that, uh, Northern Ireland will wreck the place and the streets will be in flames. Should 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 we try and be a little bit more circumspect before we uh, take that as um as 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 representative of what's actually of what's actually happening? And all I can do is is say that we have learned lessons. Those of us who have lived through it have learned the lessons. Um, those words I hope are rhetoric uh, and aren't going to be acted upon. It will serve our community no better. In fact, what they're first going to rack is, is our community um, because this starts off as riots and they don't riot in nationalist areas. They don't riot in the EU areas. They don't riot in the Tory areas. They, they riot in their own areas. The first cars, the first buses, the first the first businesses that will be affected will be within the loyalist community. So I would say if you're thinking along those lines, don't. We have learned the hard way that politics is the answer for this, not violence. Emma, to Sam's point, um, there's a saying I've used often where they say, you know, um, good news we love, bad news we can deal with, but but no news is the worst news at all because, you know, it, it does, it gets into a vacuum, f f flows all that. Pol politics there, though, Sam is saying it's working in the background. What's your sense of it? Is it working in the background? Because I know we've broken the record, haven't we, for the, the longest time without a, without a government uh, now? <sighs> Yeah, don't depress me, uh, Tony. You know, like we are hitting the 25th anniversary of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement now in April. And we're again in a period of, um, you know, no functioning um, Stormont executive, no um, no assembly. So this is something that I think is, um, as Sam said, it's creating a political vacuum and it gives space for those with nefarious agendas to fill that um, with their own sort of selfish and, uh, aims in terms of what they're trying to do and they are just wrecking their own communities and I think the challenge we face is also how desensitized we've become as a society to the existence and prevalence of paramilitary organizations 25 years after the peace process um, the fact that we have senior UVF figures putting out these kinds of threats and then being head you know reported as headline news I mean these are criminal gangs um, you know, the fact that that's being reported on in this way, I think, does create a, an issue and a concern because it almost normalizes this kind of threat as something that we should be absorbing as a society versus the fact that these gangs really should just be disbanded. They should be arrested. They should be, you know, they shouldn't be here anymore. So I think there is a an issue with that kind of reporting. And I think a bit of an issue with how we as a society 
accept the existence of these organizations. I mean, the Independent Reporting Commission has a report out again, just came out at the end of last year, that says that this is a, a serious threat to Northern Ireland, that, the, that loyalist paramilitaries are actively recruiting young people. And I think we need to take serious what's actually happening here. Politics is the answer, but obviously politicians are not really stepping up and showing the leadership we need. Yeah, but you see, when you, sorry, Sam, I just want to say on the criminal gang piece, all of uh, criminal gangs, if they were loyalist paramilitaries, their their work as such would be in paramilitarism, but it doesn't seem to be that. It seems to be what we said as criminal gangs, which have other nefarious ways of generating income. So, uh, sorry, Sam, go ahead. I was just going to say on, on the basis of what I was saying there about loyalist uh, groups recruiting, and one of the young men arrested for the attempted murder of the police officer was 22. Yeah. He's post Good Friday Agreement. You know, he he knows nothing of the troubles, no lived experience there. It's been what has been fed to him. Um, so we can we can look at what loyalists are doing. And at, at the minute, thankfully, it is rhetoric. And thank, thankfully, it is just bluster at the minute. And I'm not saying bluster as in to taunt them. I'm saying that it's words. Um, but we're seeing on the other on the other side of that coin, the guns were back on the street. And again, it's 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 the youth that are involved in this. Now, I don't think what they did the other night. Uh, forwarded Ireland's cause in any shape or form. Um, it, it, in fact, it probably set them back another 10 years because everybody in the unionist community just went, you see, that's what happens. Um, and rightly or wrongly, um, that's how the Republican community will be seen. Um, that if they don't get their own way, they shoot people in the street and they shoot them in front of their children. Um, and it, it needs to be condemned. But it, it's, although the lawyers get all the headlines, and believe it or not, I Half of this stuff, I think the media laps up because it just sells papers. You know, right. I haven't bought a Sunday paper this up here, and, and I, I can't remember how long because the Sunday Life and the Sunday World to me are just rags. They, they, it's a gossip rag, well, and they like the I, even I can see the sensationalist levels yeah. of it. It's you know, I, I, it, it reminds me of when I was growing up, and, and we had the, the Sunday World was a much more popular in in, uh, in Dublin than it is nowadays, and this stuff was because it was tittle tattle and sensationalism. Yeah, well, I mean that kind of practice within media, you know, you're going to see that the world over, you know, leading into that sort of sens- sensational news coverage. But I think when you're in a post-conflict society, there is a broader conversation to be had over the responsibility that the media does have in terms of if it leans into peace reporting or if it is using those kinds of divisive um, political reporting that kind of just stokes tensions more than anything else. I think there is an added responsibility in a post-conflict society and a conversation should be held over how perhaps the media does respond to these kinds of situations. And also just to, to come in what Sam said there as well about what happened in Oma, which is not far from me, um, and was just really so horrific um, as to what, and, and the impact of that will be felt across communities across Northern Ireland. And I think it was really um, important that the political party leaders all came out and stood together and condemned what happened. It really showed that we are trying to work together to move forward as a society. But I think equally, all parties need to come out and condemn the threats that were coming out and being reported on last night from loyalist paramilitaries. There has to be an even approach to both because these are terrorist organizations. And sometimes we find here that political parties often will condemn one side and not the other. Uh, Can I, can I, play um, in a different role on that Emma though because we only have to go back two years and, and look at when we did the talk around the protocol and what was happening and it was it was again that that moment where sometimes people are saying well if you put some infrastructure there and it was actually our Taoiseach who then became tarnished and then became Taoiseach again he, he was considered by the loyalist community to have made a kind of 
you know, or you'll bring you'll bring them back. You'll bring the guns back if you put infrastructure there, which was kind of the way of sort of leaning into that. And I know, you know, that 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 is a constant refrain. So I'm not. I don't want to both sides. It. I simply I can't. But I want to point out that 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 is also sometimes it's politically. Um, productive for say members of of maybe the loyalist unionist community to turn around and say we don't have to say anything but by not saying anything we're also kind of you know we're okay with we're not okay with it but we're just sort of saying let let that sit there and let them let them think about it because unfortunately this the the, the negotiations from what we can see have been just like terrible <laughs> they've, they've they've handled nothing well here well just be- just before Emma comes in there what you're saying there is is correct to a certain extent Unionist politicians can sit back and say, oh, now, Doug Beatty has come out and condemned it. Mm-hmm. But he was first off the mark, so I'll give Doug that note. Um, but it gives him a bit of collateral in the background, and it costs him nothing. Because when, when nothing kicks off, when anything is wrecked, when anybody's arrested, it will not be from their little leafy suburb areas and their constituents. It will be within the loyalist community. Um, so I would say to those young lads who are maybe sitting there going, we, we can do this. No, you can't. Because it wrecks lives, it wrecks your lives, and wrecks other people's lives within your community. And be be careful that you don't become a pawn for somebody else's game. Because as, as you rightly said, Tony, these guys sit back and say nothing for a while. It yeah. costs them nothing. They, they they are getting they are getting sort of momentum and a bit of pressure put where they want it by saying nothing. And again, it, it's it's young lads on the Shankill, young lads in East Belfast, young lads in, in housing states up and down the country that are going to go to jail. Yeah, no, I think I think that well, you just said what I was trying to say, but a lot better. You know that there is there is a political. If we can get back to the politics, Emma, um, there's more talk again of you know um, a deal being imminent on the on the protocol, a deal being uh, they're they're almost there. It's 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 about to. What's your sense of this now? Because it does seem that. Uh, as we said, actually, a couple of years ago, when we started having these conversations on on the Tortoise Shack that there was going to be a fudge and the fudge might be something that actually benefits uh the wider northern ireland communities uh, and now we might be getting to that point where the eu are willing to say well we, we you know we, we're not going to actually change the, the the language of the agreement but we may change the spirit of it if that if that's if that's the kind of feel yeah i mean look we've had a week of uh being teased every day with the prospect of a deal being announced and from someone who writes about politics you know it was uh, an, an anxiety fueled week uh of anticipation but uh the rumor mill is strong that there is going to be an announcement uh in the next couple of days the deal is going to be revealed it has been sitting on the table and the struggle for rishi sunak has been trying to get agreement trying to ensure there's not too much dissent about the content of that deal. And it does seem to be that there's been quite significant concessions from the EU. They have moved significantly in some areas. And if done correctly, it could be very beneficial to Northern Ireland. Some of these areas could be an improvement on the protocol. And certainly if it leads to the restoration of Stormont and some kind of political stability, that would be highly beneficial. The challenge is going to be the ERG and the DUP. And the language from both appears to still be quite hard around all EU law having to be removed. And I know that business leaders met with the government this week and were very clear that this concept of uh, removing EU law entirely or this concept of dual regulatory systems would completely decimate parts of the industry here. So there has to be an agreement that is going to benefit the people of Northern Ireland, it's going to benefit businesses in Northern Ireland 
And that may require the DUP to make a concession on the more ideological uh, position that they're taking. Just Sam, on, uh, what's your take on this? Because I will say something that's uh, that's strikes me is that we see in opinion polls now the Labour government potential incoming Labour government are much further ahead than than the Tories. Like they look like they'll win a, a big majority if there was an election in the, shortly. And they're talking about kind of more more of a customs union already. They're kind of having those conversations, which mean things like that. We're, what we're talking about in that Northern Ireland are are will are currently being forced to take will be actually something that the rest of the UK will want in the, in the short term. Yeah, I mean, I think what we're heading is maybe towards where Theresa May was many moons ago, uh, and we've taken the, the long way around for a shortcut to get there. Um, he talked the best of both worlds for Northern Ireland and, and the things that we could do to, to prosper. And if we can truly prosper from it, then I, I have to say we need to encourage it because in, in, a, in a country where, where we, we we're broke, and there's no other word to say that we are. We, we we kick in more than we give out. We are dependent on so much from from the UK. If we can if we can turn that around and become a half halfway house is the wrong way to got it to because that gives everybody the wrong impression. If we can find a deal that allows us to exploit both markets, and I say exploit in the best possible way, if we can find a way that we can buy and sell from both markets, that will work. I mean, there was a guy put up today on. On Twitter, um, some of the stuff is, is pretty good. That anybody who was banned from the UK last week suffered, um, and I'm talking about fruit and veg here, and the tomatoes yeah, yeah. and the peppers uh, suffered in getting supplies in, but those who bought from the Republic didn't. Now, I haven't seen the data that support that, but I know there's a few shops in our area here that didn't suffer, and they do import from south of the border. Mm. Um, so the weather sort of excuse that was given to us all maybe is not the case. Um, and maybe it's, it's in everybody's best interest that we blame the weather and not blame where it actually sits. But it's, we need to deal out in the, in the open and we need it explained in a way that people on the ground can understand. Because when it comes out, me and Emma will sit and be through it and we will understand, well, Emma will understand more than I will. I'll get 90% of it and the rest I'll be, yeah, <laughs> big words that we're not too sure of. But there will be people out there who will not grasp what that deal is and will depend on what the headlines on Twitter and the headlines yeah, on the yeah. media tell them that it is. And I think that's where we need to get ahead it, of the game. So so it, this is politics again. It's the art of the deal and the art of the sale. So, yeah. you know, and it truly is. It, 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 you have no idea how important that is because that's why we live in a clickbait generation now where, yeah. you know, it's it's easy to, and if it's not in the, if I, if I don't see it in the first two paragraphs, I'm already angry. Oh, you know? the, the, never mind the paragraphs. This is not in the headline. They're not going any further, you know. And again, yeah. it's back, we're back to loyalist godfathers putting up posters. I mean, the Loyalist Godfathers, that's it. People are in, people are clicking on to read that story. Yeah. Um, I, I, I've yet to see a Loyalist Godfather. I've yet to go into a room where somebody is giving it the speech. Um, <laughs> it, it doesn't seem to be that way. I think even that terminology is wrong as well. Godfather, it, it's not, it's, it's wrong. It, it just, it glamorizes it. You know what I mean? It's It makes it a movie role. It makes yeah. it something that people can aspire to and it's not, but it really isn't. Emma, it's funny though. You mentioned the ERG, and you know they're uh, unhappy, which unhappy with the deal that they helped put together. You know, it's it, it. We're laughing. We're all laughing here, but it's true. They 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 put together this deal themselves, and now they're saying if if you if you go with that deal, it's a betrayal. <laughs> I mean, all we can do is laugh though, because it is just so ridiculous. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I I saw the interview with your man Mark Front, whatever his name is. Um. So uh, he was saying. Uh, that the Northern Ireland Protocol was always meant to be temporary. 
you yeah. know, like they they put it through Parliament. Uh, it was not temporary when it went through and was ratified. Um, but I think the reality is the ERG is significantly weakened. Um, you know, there were reports that there were only 18 people in that meeting uh, from the ERG this week, um, down from what would have been uh, reported as being about 80 members. Yep. So the ERG doesn't have the power influence that it used to have. And I think that's why you can see the language from the ERG and from the DUP about pushing for a vote in the Commons on whatever this deal is. And it does look like Rishi Sunak might have the ability to not have to have a vote at all. And of course, they don't want that uh, because they want to be able to flex their own muscles um, and I think that if they can get this agreement through without holding a deal in the Commons, that's the best way to go instead of giving these people airtime. Mm. I just think Rishi Sunak's in a position whereby if he does have to go to a vote, uh, imagine his face if he's if because uh, we know Keir Starmer has said he's happy to to help, so they don't want to go down that road at all. Yeah. You know, they just don't. Um, it, but it, it is. It's it's we're, we're again we're laughing, but it's just it's just not funny because the the mess they're making of this. In terms of Sam, you were saying in terms of you know getting the the or the um the institutions back up and running. I'm hearing nothing about anything beyond uh, is it before May already. Yeah, I mean, there, there's there's a process in place that has to sort of kick in before it all before it all goes back in. And to be honest, May's not that far away. And this is not our first rodeo uh, and having no function in the assembly. So we're the people on the ground are well used to nobody on the hill doing what they're supposed to be doing at the moment. And, and that's that's a sad reflection, to be honest. We're, we're used to not being governed. Uh, we're used to the, the adults having to come in from the, the, the major parties across the water and sort us out because we can't do the basics. Um, but as far as going back in, I think we need to pass this. Every time there's a disagreement, we collapse. It, we've got to move past this. It, it's it's beyond parody now. It's, we're now in the situation where... I remember watching which of the carry on films where they were based in a toilet factory and they were walking out every two minutes. There was a, there was a strike every two minutes for something. They were out the road, up the road. That's where we're at at the minute. You know, if they go back in next week and somebody doesn't like the brand of coffee, they're striking in the, in the cafe. Are they going to walk out again? We're that situation. I think yeah, they, I, I hadn't even I hadn't even looked at it from through that prism because we see we see, you know, scandals about uh, a TD putting on a jacket he hasn't worn in a few months and finding he has two more properties that he'd forgotten about. Um, you know, um, and we're going like, you know, we're going, we want a general election. Uh, and they go, and our government go, no, we're never leaving. We're staying. <laughs> we're never leaving. And, and, and literally, when you think about it, you could have someone go in and say, I don't like the way he looked at me and my headset's not working. We're, we're all leaving. You know, and the other thing I just want to say before we move on, people are sort of putting this message out that, there's a lot of units have an issue with uh, Sinn Féin First Minister. I don't. And I will say this now clearly. We've always had a Sinn Féin First Minister from the minute the Martin took over because they're joint First Ministers. The title is wrong. I've said it before and I'll say it again. They have been joint First Ministers from the moment these guys got together. So whether it was David and Seamus or whether it was Ian and Martin, Arlene and Michelle, whoever it's been, have been joint First Ministers. They need to remove those plaques from the doors and put up the right plaques. So having a Shane Fein First Minister doesn't bother me in the slightest. They've been there from ever Martin took over in the seat. I have no issue with that. And I need to, I say to people in my own community, get by that that title, First Minister mm-hmm. and Deputy First. It's not one is not subservient to the other. They need to function together. Yeah. I mean, it would be a really basic and uh wise thing to do to change the wording of these titles to joint first minister it would remove that entirely so i mean i think that 
the current situation is really leading to the possibility of reforming the institutions. I think that calls for that are getting much louder. And the fact that the Northern Ireland Affairs Committee is having an examination of whether stormant reform is something that there's an appetite for doesn't itself lend the idea that this conversation is happening at a political level. Um, and if you look at the Northern Ireland Affairs Committee website, you'll see lots of submissions calling for reform. And I think we should be mature enough as a society to reflect on the fact that what might have been necessary in 1998 might not be necessary today. It has been 25 years and there should be a conversation held over some of the ways that we're operating or uh, institutions here in terms of the designations is one to look at, but also in terms of this idea that a party can pull down the institutions for whatever reason they choose. I think the Alliance Party recommendations around the idea of it passing to the next largest party is something that absolutely should be discussed. And I think that that conversation can't happen just behind closed doors either. I think, yes, there should be all party talks on stormant reform, but there also should be, in my view, a citizens' assembly in Northern Ireland on stormant reform. We do have provision with a new decade, new approach to have a citizens' assembly, supposedly one every year. We haven't ever had one under that mechanism, but this certainly would be a good conversation to be held in that kind of space. You know, what I was saying there is correct. We, the, the Civic Assembly before the Good Friday Agreement worked. Uh, I know guys who sat on it um, and it was productive to a certain extent, um, but the politicians didn't, don't like it. They don't being, like being dictated to by, by us mere mortals on the ground. Um, those of us who actually live and breathe and sort of constitute the, the country so, rather so, than so, sit up so, there. So Sam, can I ask you, are the, are the people ahead of the politicians yet again? Uh, we always have been. Um, there, there are politicians there, career politicians there, who shouldn't be there anymore because the politics that they're based on are 20-year-old politics. Um, and I, they come around every year when there's an election and tell us that they're going to listen. They, they don't listen. They, they, they take your vote and then go and do what they want to do with it anyway. You can do nothing about it for another four years. Um, and the other thing I will say about the storm and collapse is we are losing politicians because of it. Yeah, uh, we are losing quite capable politicians because it's not a steady income. They're having their wages cut. I know people will be clamoring that they're getting paid for nothing. I can tell you, there's MLAs out there at the minute who are working twice as hard, and they're not sitting in stormy because they are they are making sure they are justifying what they're taking. Um, so if they think that they can't pay their mortgage or supply for their family because every time they go into work it's going to be collapsed, they will go and make employment elsewhere. And we are losing capable really good politicians. The only people hanging about are the ones who can afford to lose a percentage of their wage or can afford to sit about and do nothing because they've got other concerns they can be doing. Or, or, um, or, or, other, uh, or other income streams, as we've mm. seen with some of them, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. like that's, that's, that's always an issue. And I've seen, I have seen it actually. And I have seen some of the younger um, politicians that, you know, that have been maybe first time elected in the last, in the last uh, storm of elections. And they're already almost talking about, it. I don't know if I'd ever go through that again. I mean, the Alliance have lost a very capable candidate in, in Northampton uh, who's gone off to work for, for Queen's University, I believe. I mean, you got to say that she was elected and, and never got a chance to do her job. Um, whether I agree or not agree with what Alliance do, it, it, mm. we're losing that generation of people who are passionate about what is going on in this country, who go and get elected and then have to stand and twiddle their thumbs. I mean, there's a lot of good politicians that I'm speaking to at the minute who are frustrated. And I don't mean frustrated because they're angry. They're frustrated because they can't do what they want to do. Yeah. They want to make an impact and they're not being able to do that. So how do they go back to the doors again and say, vote for me again because I did this, this and this? when they're really achieving not a lot of them, unfortunately. 
Emma, can I ask you to turn your eyes towards Dublin for, for a little while and, and ask, do you think that there's been any kind of, I know when the change of Taoiseach, uh, the, when the, the when the lads swapped titles, um, the Leo Varadkar made a few comments and he had to backtrack again a couple of days later. And he's, you know, he's, he's, he's had this ability all his career actually to say something and then maybe go, well, maybe that was, you know, I didn't frame that correctly, but we've also seen, you know, talks of um, that, that they're, they want the institutions up and running. They want a more, uh, a partner that they can actually know that's much more stable and you know this is to give them some credit that they have actually started to look at it through that prism even be albeit but i do think it is going back to the the politically uh scoring points unfortunately again you know with the, with the awful events of the other night they're back to that again of you know demons and dozens again but unfortunately have you felt any any change of tone from dublin yeah i mean i think that dublin has been a bit quieter bit more diplomatic uh, over the last few months, um, pushing, I think, for a resolution, wants to see the Assembly back up and running. Um, and I think that um, Michal, since he moved into foreign affairs, um, has had a pretty even hand. So I think that the language is, is good. The desire for cooperation is good. Um, and I think that, you know, Irish government often has to walk a very tight, diplomatic tight rope uh, when it comes to this stuff with Northern Ireland. And that can be very tricky, particularly when you're working with some of the harder uh, conservatives within the Conservative Party. So I think all in all, um, there's hopes that there's going to be a restoration of the Assembly. Um, I would agree that it looks likely that we might not get it for the anniversary in April. And I think there is a wider conversation to be held around that as well and how that might impact not just how we mark the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, but how that anniversary landing at a time of no governance will impact on people's own thinking uh, on their minds across society and how it might make people think about the Good Friday Agreement in the next 25 years. I think it has a wider impact. Um, Sam, just on uh, to go to actually to Emma's point on, on the fact that we're coming up on the the 25th anniversary, many members of of the loyalist community have said, you know, well, the agreement's dead. Don't, don't, you know, that that's been that's been quite a common uh, refrain. Do you, do you feel though that again we've had this conversation several times? So uh, apologies for going over old ground. The agreement probably never ever got, never got off the shelf in many in many respects. Yeah, yeah and it, it hasn't it hasn't developed and it hasn't paid out in certain communities, or they feel it hasn't paid out. Um, they can look and blame the agreement or they can look and blame demons on the other side, but I think they need to put it at their own politicians first because unless you ask, you don't get. Um, and when they did ask, where did it go? So if, if you're if you're sitting in your 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 estate at the minute and you're sitting blaming the Good Friday Agreement because nothing's happened in your housing estate, go and ask your politician first why it hasn't happened and get a proper answer. Um, second of all, as much as I don't like to admit it, I think if the agreement was to be voted on again within the loyalist community, it wouldn't get support. And that's because how it's being sold. Um, it, it, and again, it, that is down to how politicians want to use that community. So it, it's easier to keep us down, keep us morose, keep us um, paranoid to a certain extent. And if they do that and tell us that the agreement's not working for us, then they'll keep us angry and they'll keep us primed for whatever they need us for. Um, the agreement has worked to a certain extent. We have certainly carried a lot less boxes out of our state and put them in Roselaw. We have certainly 
seen a lot, lot less of our guys go to jail and have to go and visit them when families broke up. It has worked to a certain extent. It needs to keep working. Um, whose fault that is? I don't want to push in blame because it is a failure on everybody's part to make sure. It, it, it's, it's within Sinn Féin's best interest to make sure that the loudest population are happy. And it's within the DUP's best interest that the Republican community are happy. That is the way politics works. Um, we are coming down to a situation in the future where if, if there's a referendum, you just need to wake up and know that they're going to be outnumbered. And if everybody votes along those old tribal lines, then they're going to be in trouble. Um, and Doug's taken the, the opinion that he needs nationalist votes. And that is true. Um, it, but the Good Friday Agreement, we need to look at how we're going to celebrate. Emma's right. We need to look at how we're going to celebrate this because we need to show people the good side of it. We need to promote what has worked. We need to show them what the benefits are. And we need to show them that if we buy back into this, if we look at where this goes again, can we make progress mm. and have an honest conversation if we can or not? Or do we need to go back to the drawing board and say, Good Friday Agreement, Mark Two, let's see how this works out. I think we're on Mark Four at the minute, to be honest. Uh, if you look at the, the, the sort of St. Andrews Agreement, the New Deal, and all, it's just, but, it's but, been looked at so many times. Isn't, isn't it? Is, but again, we've just spent 20 minutes talking about and we, this kind of hanging over us is that kind of idea of no going back. And we need to be moving forward, Emma, I believe, to the what does it look like going forward? Uh, yeah, I mean, look, on the well, first off, I think it's important to note that there are those using that kind of language, the Good Friday Agreement is dead or the agreement is dead, that have never supported the agreement. And they're pushing that narrative because that's their main objective. That's what they've been trying to do all along. And they're just trying to to use and, and get a foothold in the political vacuum that we currently have and the anxiety that communities um, feel and they're trying to use that to push forward their own selfish agenda uh, and create kind of this sort of instability they're furthering that um, but in terms of the agreement itself you know look it's never been fully implemented um, most of the rights-based provisions or provisions that were aimed around social cohesion and reconciliation have never been delivered or have been misimplemented and that's a real challenge as we head into the 25th anniversary and my concern is, uh, you know, there's a, an, an institutional level um, and a government level, you know, they just want to have a, a big hoo-ha party where they get in all the people who were there in 1998 and pat them all on the back and say, job well done. Look how great you all are. You got this across the line. Let's all celebrate. Um, and my understanding is that's very much going to be the case for some of these large uh, institutional events that are happening. And I think what we really need to do is we need to have a serious conversation. We need to actually uh, critically examine what's worked and what hasn't worked. And we also really need to bring in the next generation. There's just not enough intergenerational transmission of learning happening. Whenever you keep bringing back the people from 1998 and you don't include the people that are actually going to have to take this forward, you know, that creates a real challenge because young people are not being given the tools and resources necessary to be able to take forward this work. And, you know, the people that were there in 1998 are not always going to be here. So I think we need to now start looking at how we can include the next generation and start looking at how maybe the next generation can shape the agenda to try and push some of this stuff forward. I just think um, we have to also give a shout out to our dear leader, Bertie O'Hearn, and his new podcast. So he's back now and he's got a pod and he's, he's you know, um, we're, <laughs> I'm getting I'm getting filthy looks here, folks. Uh, but no, but like, but we see, you know, you're right. But that's that's why this, this podcast has been launched. That's why the rebrand has happened. That's why he's back in Finnafall, because we're, we're, we're doing this kind of um, revisionist history idea. Yeah, I mean, I was talking about who was there in 98. Where, where was Jeffrey in 98? Mm. 
He was in a party that signed up the Good Friday Agreement and he left because of it. Now he is expected to make it work. Is it in his interest to make it work? You're looking at Sinn Féin, whose only purpose in life is to make sure there's United Ireland. Do they want Northern Ireland to work? Well, that's, that's the hands that we have our country in at the minute. You know, it, and, and, and to think back to 98 and Trimble... <laughs> Trimble had what they call the Trimble moment where he reached out to the SDLP and tried to make things better. It didn't work out for him, but he had guts to try it. Uh, I mean, so about, I suppose your question, and it's been asked of me this week, is does Jeffrey have it within him to have a Trimble moment, to take that leap with whatever deals come in his way, to sell it to the unionist community? Has, has he got the back end and the, and the backbone to, to go, this is the best we have got, we have negotiated, and this is what we've got to go forward and have have a bit of momentum for a change yeah Yeah, i don't know i'm a bit more skeptical maybe than you sam about whether or not we have that kind of leadership still uh within our politics here and i think that when you speak about um blame or or who's responsible i think it's really important to recognize it's not just that the politicians in northern ireland are responsible for the fact Mm -hmm. that we don't have implementation of most of the good friday agreement but both governments as well have played Mm -hmm. their part and i think after 1998 my read on it is that there was just complacency. There was no implementation strategy. There was no monitoring. There was no push to get this stuff actually put into action, um, not in a meaningful way. And oftentimes, I think there can be a lot of focus on the Conservative Party, given um, that, you know, if they are pretty horrendous in terms of how they have used Northern Ireland and the Good Friday Agreement. But let's remember the Labour Party was in government for 10 years after the agreement was signed as well. And Lots of things like the divergence from what the Bill of Rights was supposed to be happened under the watch of Labour. Um, and the Irish government too showed complacency. Oh, so lads. all political like, parties and all political sides have played their role in terms remember, of us not getting it done. Do, do, yeah. do you remember last year when I had like like 15 seconds of fame on the Claire Byrne show with that, with that clip? There was the thing that what most people didn't pick up on was that there was a question later on that it was obviously the, the show, the, the premise of the show was to have a go at Sinn Féin. And one of the government uh, ministers, ministers of state at the time said something about, you know, um, Sinn Féin's failure to the, on the Good Friday Agreement. And, and again, this Egypt here from the crowd went, your, you, your government are a signatory to it. And you could audibly hear Claire Byrne go, <laughs> and I just thought to myself, but it's just so funny that we have this kind of, you know, mentality. Du- Dublin has used it as a, as a political pawn. And we see it now. Like, I mean, ge- genuinely, they're the DUP must be just waiting on the next time they're going to be betrayed by uh, by Westminster. It's like, you know, oh, oh. yeah. It, Listen, it's... look, I sat down with um, the Irish government during our, our case or court case at the time. Yeah, and I remember sitting and saying, you know, why is it that we have uncovered this incompatibility with the Good Friday Agreement? Why hasn't this been? delivered why hasn't this been put into law why is it that we as ordinary citizens are having to to do it to to, to sort this out whenever you are, are are a co-guarantor of the agreement itself so i think that definitely both the irish and british government um you know they bur- they they should shoulder the burden of mm. some of these failures yeah, I think they they sort of thought job was done and that was it. We're going to walk away and leave it to its own devices. I mean, anybody who's ever carried out a project knows you need to keep monitoring, reviewing, implementing, and, and and reassess it if you need to. We haven't. We we sort of left it job done, went off to focus on other things. Um, and yeah, it just fell apart. And it's become such a rotten. It's like we started building a, a lovely state home somewhere and we've run out of money and it just gets left for nature to overgrow. That's where we are with the Good Friday Agreement. It's just being rotted from the inside. 
That's a very, that's a very cheerful thought, uh, Emma. Can I can I just go back to you? you? Did mention the citizens' assembly, and I know it's a question that you've we've discussed, and it's become more topical, obviously, as as, as things go on in terms of votes for uh, the diaspora. Uh, and there is, you know, they were saying, well, we'll extend the franchise to people that can vote in, in the Irish presidential election. Uh, the mood the music doesn't seem to be good, though, and actually on, on that actually taking place in a timely fashion. Yeah, I mean, look, there. Um, this has been in the works for a long time um, because it was uh, a recommendation that there should be the extension of the franchise for presidential elections to citizens outside the state. And I've been working with others within campaign groups, including votingrights.ie, about the um, referendum to be held on extending presidential voting rights. And we had anticipated it would fall within this term of the government because let's not forget, it is part of the program for government that the government will hold this referendum. Now we're hearing that the intention is to kick the can down the road and that actually after all the work that lots of us have been putting in behind the scenes to try and push this forward, the government is potentially going to not hold this referendum and there's a, a, a potential that it might be a case of the referendum being held on the same day as the actual presidential election in 2025. Now what that means is that people who live outside the state who currently have no right to vote for their president, which is I must say an outlier in terms of the global stage when it yeah. comes to democracy. Ireland really, really is behind. We, I mean, my we, American husband we, votes for his president. I was going to say we forget that in 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 Western democracies, Ireland is I think one of only two other countries that are kind of don't extend the franchise in that in that. I'm going to have to use it in the US speak, aren't I, folks? I sound extend the franchise. <laughs> but, yeah, it's um look a total outlier, and particularly when it comes to Europe, too, complete outlier. I mean. But the reality is, if they do go ahead with this plan of kicking the can down the road, not delivering on this uh, program for government um, commitment to hold this referendum, then what we're looking at is people not being able to have a right to vote for their president until 2032. And let's remember, this is a largely symbolic vote uh, because we know the role of of the office of president and we know that it's incredibly important for Irish citizens who live outside the state, who have often been abandoned, who've been forgotten about, um, incredibly important and symbolic to those uh, individuals, myself included, to be able to have that right to vote for our president. And the idea they're going to kick it until 2032, I have to say pretty disappointing well i'll remind you that the new the new old t-shock who's back in the in the chair a few months he did say um no uh no representation without taxation which is a very dangerous thing to have as a mindset but he did say that he did say that and he, as a man who said that i mean that could literally mean we could be turned around and how far do you then filter that down do you talk about people who are maybe you know did say well they're not that you're not working you're a carer uh-oh yeah, you know, it's incredibly dangerous language and it mm. has no basis in legal reality. No. Um, taxation, citizenship and voting, they're not linked because voting is actually a right within your, your citizenship, not linked to taxation. And obviously, if any country was to adopt that kind of policy, it's quite dangerous. And those who try to use that kind of rhetoric, no representation without taxation, they tend to cite the American model, the fact that in America, those who live abroad Um, do have an obligation to file taxes. But I like to remind people that the Constitution in America protects the right to vote regardless of whether you file taxes or not, and Mm. explicitly states that there is no connection between the two because the right to vote is a fundamental part of your citizenship. So I think it's quite dangerous language um, and it gets muddied and it just kind of 
creates a lot of um, misinformation around the fact that this is not some sort of controversial thing. This is a standard democratic process that a lot of countries are already doing. Sam, um, just before we we wrap up here, that there is an element that I think you've said it that if the deal is done, would you like to see it published in full for everybody to parse and 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 explained in a much better way? Because I go back to the Brexit idea when you said to me why you why you were opposed to Brexit is because they didn't tell me what it was going to look like. Yeah, I mean it, certainly. Why would you not publish it in full? What is to hide? If you cannot make it public for everybody to understand, then what is the point of having it? I mean, if you're going to hide things in, in little clauses with big words so people don't understand what's going on, that's nefarious. You don't need to be doing that. If you want to be transparent, if you want to get people on board, you want buy-in from communities, put it out there, put it in plain English, explain what it is, and explain the benefits, pros and cons, whatever way you want to do it, just explain it. Because, yeah, if you, if, you, if, you, if we're going to leave this vacuum to fester much longer, the, the level heads, the guys that we talk to on, on Lexi Shrapnel, the, the guys who have any influence and any experience and talk to the, the young lads, they're going to lose that. And there's already a few of them saying, what's the point in talking to them anymore? Because well, we're making no difference and this is this is getting worse. So if you're going to put an agreement out, big centre spread, get it in all the local papers, post it out to people's doors if you have to, like you did with the Good Friday Agreement, and put it in plain English. Break it down. Tell them exactly what a green lane is, if it's a green lane. Tell them if it's a red lane, what that does. Tell mm. them how it affects their travel. Can they travel with their pets? Break it down to the nuts and bolts. Will the cost of their bread go up? Can they have tomatoes next week? Whatever it takes, you put it in simple terms, and, how and it's going to affect their life. I actually think there's a, I actually think there's another set upsell on that because I know the European Court of Justice uh, has been a a, a, a mark that people are, are, are concerned. I'd be I'd be pushing back and saying, well, by the way, for employee rights, the lads that you're talking about, at least you might have better protections in some of these things because we've seen what a Tory government has been trying to do in terms of employee rights. Uh, and you know, uh, again, you want if someone said to you, you know, you could have you have you, on your car, you have uh, you can have third party uh, insurance or you can have fully comp. You take the fully comp, wouldn't mm-hmm. you? Yeah. So, you know, so this is the sort of protections that we should be upselling, not uh, not knocking, I suppose. But, but that's the kind of thing that needs to be explained to them that, yes, they may not, they may think they don't want the European Court of Human Rights overseeing mm. them. But what are the benefits of it? What are the cons of it? And let them make a balanced decision. At the minute when they're being told that that's wrong because that's a foreign destination overseeing your rights and implementing rules. Is it? Well, let's have a look at it. That's what needs to happen. They may yeah, be right, they may be wrong. There's a need to, um, Acknowledge that for many people, it's not a foreign, um, yeah. it's not foreign interference because many of us are European citizens. Um, and there's also a, a challenge in the fact that there are many European citizens in Northern Ireland and we don't have any representation. We don't have any kind of say. And there's, a, I think, an issue there in terms of how can Northern Ireland have a voice uh, within Europe? Um, around sort of these issues and um, definitely there's a need for more inclusion of our representatives as well in, in some shape or form because you know of course this is a deal between the UK and the EU uh, but it massively impacts here and there should be space for consultation and representation at a greater level for our representatives um, in order to try and have more stability in how we take things forward and I would echo what Sam said about how this needs to be in plain English it needs to be articulated what's happening I think also the media is going to have um, a job of work to do over the next few weeks in terms of how this is um, explained and articulated and reported on. 
Um, I did see that there was a, a piece done there with um, Ben Lowry from the newsletter, and it will be one to watch in terms of how the newsletter puts forward from an editorial perspective what their narrative is going to be um, if the DUP does come out and agree mm. that it's going to accept this deal. If they lean into perhaps more of the narrative from uh, extreme minorities like uh, Jim Allister, who is one MLA, or Jamie Bryson, who's entirely unelected, versus actually trying to support um, the largest unionist party's position if they do, in fact, decide that this is a deal they can sell. So I think there's a, a role for the media here, too. Yeah, I mean, I, I would like to see the media cut out of it altogether, to be honest, or else everything that the media does comes with a little clause at the end that says opinion or interpretation of, not fact, because that's what it is. Um, yeah, I, th- I think sometimes they, they muddy the waters so much. It, it needs to come from an independent source and it needs to be plain English for us all to understand. Sam, Emma, we'll leave it there. Uh, thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. Uh, I hope you all got a lot out of that, listeners, because we covered a lot of this and where it's going. Um, and I just thought it would be really appropriate to do that today. Uh, we know we. I think it's great that we're forward looking as well here. We're, we're trying to look at what it could be better. Last thing I want to say is my campaign for leadership at the Sock Dems hasn't gotten off to a great start. Um, but you know, I'm confident that like if if I finally if I can get a party membership, you know, and then get into it, I, I will get in there. You know, uh, we'll talk to you all soon. Sam, you want to come in? Yeah, just as you're looking forward, can I just give a, a, a quick sort of punt for shrapnel? Um, do. Yeah, we, we we are at the minute uh, putting the guest list together. It is quite exciting who we've got on there. The feedback from some people at the minute is that they're, they're, they're glad to come on and it's going to take off shortly. So hopefully we'll have the first pod in the next sort of month or so. Um, Brilliant. But it's looking good. So keep listening, please, and, and keep supporting the Tortoise Shack because without them, shrapnel doesn't exist, to be honest. And if I can shamelessly also just do a quick line on the civic initiative while we're at it, we're all talking about the future. So um, you can all head over to Civic Initiative NI to follow what this is. But it is a new large scale participatory initiative being launched in Northern Ireland that is essentially trying to mobilize civic society and citizens at large around the peace process, trying to give agency and ownership back to communities and individuals to show that they actually do have a meaningful role to play in terms of how we move things forward. It's going to be critically analyzing and supporting the advancement of peace, reconciliation and well-being and really trying to sort of get people involved in terms of how do we break this uh, cycle of failed commitments because the answers are there. We just don't have the right framework to harness those ideas and solutions and the civic initiative is going to give it our best shot at being that framework. Great stuff, Emma. Thanks for that. And thanks, Sam. Uh, we'll be back, folks, uh, tomorrow already. We've got uh, John Bissett on his new book. So looking forward to that as well. Talk to you all very soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Tony and Martin, Martin and Tony, speaking to interesting people only. It's the Echo Chamber podcast. Subscribe now on Patreon.